Take your Bible, turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Next week, Children's Church comes back, and so giving our workers rest this month, and we appreciate having the kids in the service with us. And uh, for those of you who haven't been here for a while or are newer, you see the remodel project are still going on. A lot of things are going to be buttoned up and finished this week, but we still have some ongoing things, and so we'll... We have a remodel team meeting this week, and we'll be giving you more information uh, next Sunday about that as well. 1 John chapter 2, as we go verse by verse through this book of the Bible, staying faithful to the apostles' teaching. And I encourage you to turn to 1 John 2.18, and we'll get there in just a minute. But there's many false teachings out in our culture and churches. First of all, I'm going to look at just three. I could list dozens, but... Here's three cultural false teachings. One, it makes no difference what you believe as long as you are sincere. Now, that statement expresses the personal philosophy of many, many people today, but it's doubtful whether most of those who make it have really thought it through. Is sincerity the magic ingredient that makes something true? If so, then you ought to be able to apply it to any area of your life, not only to religion. For example, a nurse in a city hospital gives some medicine to a patient, and the patient becomes violently ill. The nurse is sincere, but the medicine is wrong, and the patient almost dies. A man hears noises in his house one night, and he gets up and grabs his gun, and he shoots at the noise and finds out it was his daughter who couldn't sleep, who got up in the middle of the night to get something to eat. Unable to sleep, and so she ends up the victim of her father's sincerity. It takes more than sincerity to make something true. Faith in a lie will always cause serious consequences, but faith in the truth is never misplaced. It does make a difference what a man believes. If a man decides to drive from Chicago to New York, but he takes the road to Los Angeles, he's never going to get to New York. No matter how much he tries, and a person who is real builds his life on truth, not superstition or lies. It's impossible to live a real life by believing lies. Acts 4.12 tells us the truth. It does matter who you believe in and committed to sincerely. It says, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that name and that person is Jesus Christ. Second of all, Mother Nature. Mother Nature is used to speak of the material world, that the universe is eternal. Nothing so encapsulates the worldview of our secular society as does the love for Mother Nature. How many meteorologists, how many climate change people, they refer to Mother Nature. Whether ranked materialist or atheist or pantheist, they've descended to worshiping the creature and the creation in place of the creator. When we consider Peter Singer, who is at Princeton University and believes animals should have similar rights to human beings, the tree huggers of the environmental movement, or those who facilitate ceremonies in which humans are encouraged to marry the ocean, all are worshipers of the creation and not the creator. Ocean and trees, however, are tough things to cuddle with by the fireplace on a cold winter night. Romans 1.25 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Third one that we could think of is gender identity is a matter of choice. That's very popular in our media and our culture right now. 
Despite Scripture's teaching on God's will for human identity and sexual ethics, U.S. adults increasingly affirm the right of an individual to choose his or her own gender identity despite one's biological sex. The surveys from 2016 to 2020 have been about the same, plateaued, but 2022 survey reveals that it's gaining traction with 42% of our general culture agreeing or strongly agreeing that gender identity is a matter of choice. Despite what Genesis 1.27 says in the Bible, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Let's look at some theological false teachings that have bled into uh, our culture and also into our churches. First of all, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% of evangelicals agree with that statement. 42% disagree. Malachi 3.6, just one example, James 1, we could go to many, but Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We see a second one, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% of Bible-believing Christians agree with this statement. Psalm 51.5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The last one we'll look at here, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. One quarter of evangelical Christians strongly agree with that statement. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, as the world becomes more and more secular, Christians are reading the Bible less and accepting false teachings into their belief systems. So the Apostle John warned those in the early church to be careful of those who were believers among them who rose up, departed, and led others astray. Let's turn to our scripture reading, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 20. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray you'll open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to hear, to receive from you. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And Lord, uh, let your Holy Spirit speak through me and through these words today, we pray and ask 
In Jesus' name, amen. So I encourage you to take out your outline if you haven't already. The first point John makes in this passage this morning is the false teachers were among us. That's what he said. The false teachers were among us. John warned the church family about the conflict between light and darkness in 1 John 1.1 through 2.6. He went on to warn the local church body about the conflict between loving your brothers and hating your brothers and sisters in verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 through 17. Now he's warning them of the conflict between truth and error, and we'll continue this conversation throughout the rest of this book. The Christ follower must not only walk in the light, walk in love, but he must walk in truth. <clears throat> the issue before us is will we follow the truth and really and, and the reality laid out in God's word or suffer the consequences of denying the truth or redefining the truth for ourselves? See, Satan, through our world system, is doing a fantastic job at changing the terms and removing the consequences. We see a softening of the consequences all around us. Just to name a few, think about it. Abortion pills are now available to be mailed to your home indiscreetly. We move from calling someone a pedophile to a minor attracted person. In the state of Illinois, they just passed a law that goes into effect, cashless bail, that once you are arrested, you are released. No bail necessary. And we could go on and on how the consequences are being softened or tried to be eliminated so there's no sense of guilt in our sin. So 1 John talks about here in chapter 2, the sign of the times. The sign of the times. In 1 John 2.18, children, he said, is the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour hour. Notice he says children, those who belong to the family of God. Last hour, literally in the Greek, it's last hour it is. Now, we think of this in a chronological way, but he's looking at the age. And so the last age, as far as they're concerned, started when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and will continue until Jesus physically returns on planet earth. We may be near the end of that age right now. So in Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So from their perspective, this was the last age. The disciples, they thought Jesus might return during their lifetime. So when he says the last days it is, he's probably thinking that way. And we see the appearance of Antichrist, according to John, signaled the end of that church age in his thoughts. Do you realize the only book in the Bible that uses the term Antichrist is in 1 John? I didn't know that until we I was studying through this. <clears throat> Antichrist. And it literally means against or in place of Christ. Against or in place of Christ. Now, there's three meanings to this term antichrist. First of all, a spirit in the world that opposes or denies Jesus Christ. Another definition of antichrist are false teachers who embody this spirit. But for you and I, when we think of the antichrist, we think of a person, 
that's talked about in Daniel and Revelation. And this person, the Antichrist, when he comes and appears, I believe it'll happen after the rapture of the church. And then we enter into the seven-year period of the tribulation, and the last three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation. And the Antichrist, is prophesied, will probably rise up out of the ten confederated states in Europe. And the world will be in chaos, and they'll look to one person in the world to solve the world's problems. And that will be the Antichrist. He will have an assistant, the false prophet, who will create a one-world religion. And this Antichrist will sign a covenant promise with Israel for the first three and a half years of the tribulation to protect Israel. And then at the three and a half year mark, halfway through, the great tribulation begins and the Antichrist turns against Israel and it all winds down to where they meet in the Valley of Megiddo at the Battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the world surround Israel to annihilate and destroy them once and for all. And Jesus comes riding out of the eastern sky on a horse physically to return to destroy those who want to destroy Israel and will set up his kingdom. That's when we think of the Antichrist, we, or we hear that word, we think of that. But John's talking not about this man here, but the many who will rise up in the church with the spirit of the Antichrist. So the sign that they were not of us, he wants to warn his people, these are things to look for to know that these folks were not of us, not true believers. In verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. One characteristic we see in this verse of a false teacher is they depart from the fellowship of believers. They depart from the fellowship of believers. They cause division in the wake of their leaving. They enter the church to sabotage through lies and false teachings and leave a path of destruction many times taking the weaker Christians with them. And it causes those who are left behind in the original church to miss and grieve those who left and make them wonder if they took the truth with them. They ask, why did these who profess Christ leave us? If they were true followers of Christ, they would not have left us. Here's an interesting point to consider that God allows deceivers and liars and false teachers to come into the body of Christ sometimes to purge the body to draw out false believers. Remember, even Satan and his demons serve the sovereign purposes of God. They, along with false teachers, will suffer the severest of judgments according to Jude chapter 1, verse 3 and 2 Peter 2, 12. Now, people leave churches for a variety of reasons. Some leave churches out of preference. Some leave out of a difference in philosophy with the leadership and how ministry should go. Some because of church discipline. But certainly some leave to follow false teaching, and this is what John is talking about here. And Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew 7 to watch out for wolves in sheep clothing. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 about false teachers coming into their body of believers and rising within their church family. Paul, on the shore there, meeting with the Ephesian elders for the last time, he said, you won't see me again until... We're in heaven together, and these elders are weeping, and Paul is giving this last exhortation. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. The false teachers deny that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. They deny that. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Another characteristic, we said they depart from the fellowship, but another characteristic is they deny the deity of Christ. Now hear me clearly, no one can be saved if they do not embrace the truth of scriptures that Jesus was God, period. Another way of saying it is if someone is denied that Jesus is the Son of God, he or she is not a believer in Christ. Jesus was and still is 100% God and 100% man. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You write that down and read that later on today. But Jesus said this in his own words in John 8, 24. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. A statement that he is God. So we must be so careful as human beings that we understand and see Christ for who he is. Not who we want want to make him to be, but what the Bible says that he is. See, as humans, we like to make him a superhuman. We like to, you know, shape him into what we want him to be. And we hear that in our culture all the time. But we go to the word of God to find out who Jesus really is. I've been reading a great book. I just finished it last night. I encourage you to read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And it looks, about, looks at the heart of Jesus through the lens of Scripture. And he talks about how gentle and lowly and merciful our, our Savior was. And it really opened my eyes in a new way to see the heart of Jesus through Scripture. You see, a proper Christology, a proper view of Christ is so vitally important in the age we live in. Here's a real short picture of Christology, we must believe in the incarnation, that Jesus came from heaven, wrapped himself in human flesh in Bethlehem and walked among us, John 1.14, that he's both son and God. He's both the son of God and he's equal to God. He's the son of man, as he was called, a term talking about his deity, but also his humanity, the promised prophet from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. He's the highest priest in Hebrews 4. He's King Jesus, according to Isaiah 9-7, and he is the redeemer of mankind in 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 3. So the false teachers deny that both the Father and Son are God. They move on not only to say that Christ isn't God, but the Father is not the universal God overall. In 1 John 2-22, the second part of verse 22, this is the Antichrist, He who denies the Father and the Son, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Again, no one can be saved if they do not embrace the truth of Scriptures that Jesus was God, period. If you have any doubts about that, we hear people say, well, he was a moral teacher. He healed people. He did all those things. And some even go as far to say that Jesus didn't even claim that he was God. Well, what do you do with this verse in John 10, these verses? He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Verse 30, I and the father are one, okay? 
That's about as straight up as you can get. And you know what happened? Because he said that, the Jews wanted to kill him because they believed he was blaspheming. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They knew he was claiming to be equal with God. In Matthew 8.30, there were two men that were demon-possessed. And the demons talked to Jesus. They knew who he was. And behold, the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know their ultimate judgment in the lake of fire. They know who Jesus is. So the application, be an open-minded inspector of all teachings of Scripture and inspect the fruit of the teacher. So important. In this age of social media, TikTok, Facebook, so many places, YouTube, lots of uh, teachings on YouTube and other places, be open-minded inspector of all teachings of Scripture and inspect the fruit of the teacher. Well, let's turn to John's encouragement to those who are the true followers of Christ in, within his church family. Remember, John is a pastor to the believers in Ephesus, and he's writing to them, but also to the churches in Asia Minor. So the faithful followers of the true teachings abide in Christ, remain in him. The truth is in you because you have been anointed by the Holy One. In 1 John 2.20 it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. You can't have a lie and a truth. They uh, contradict one another. They're polar opposites. Verse 27, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. The Holy Spirit is received from Christ as promised to his disciples. You might remember Jesus in John 14 promised to his disciples that when he left, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who would come alongside, would approach them and, and dwell them and teach them the things they needed to know. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We see that the Holy Spirit brings the truth of the revelation given by God. This is reality from God and truth understood and truth continually lived out in the lives of Christ followers. And we live it out because it fits our reality. It makes sense of how the world around us works, the way God put it together. And we know as believers the truth with certitude, but we don't know it arrogantly. See, we don't walk around as Pharisees telling we got the corner on the truth. We come in humility, thanking God that we have the ability to have the truth. In verse 27a, we see the gift of the Holy Spirit and his teaching ministry to us. The Holy Spirit enabled those Christ followers to know the truth. The Holy Spirit also gave followers the gift of illumination, the ability to read and understand the word of God through spiritual eyes. That's what illumination is. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
So when I was in seventh grade, reading in my English class short stories, and we read some from the Bible, <clears throat> it just was like history or literature to me. But after becoming a believer in Christ in the ninth grade, all of a sudden my spiritual eyes were opened, and I began to understand how it fit and connected with me. You see, the truth is in you because you believe, you believe that Jesus and the Father are God and one. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Jesus was sent to reflect, to do the will, to glorify his Father in heaven. And often he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he's confessing. Now what does confession mean or acknowledge in the King James Version? Homologeo in the Greek, confess, profess, promise, give thanks, confession is made. Confession shows that the believers in Christ are in right relationship with the Father. They've come to God on his terms. They realize that they are sinners. They realize they can't earn their way to heaven. That they come in repentance to turn away from their sin. They trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, his physical resurrection. And this is how they are saved. And then they continue in relationship with the Father. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what's in the heart comes out and through our mouth. If it's in our heart, we confess publicly that Jesus is Lord. And then the truth abides continually in you, continually. It's not a one time, you pray the sinner's prayer, you're saved. That's where you begin. We become baby Christians. But salvation is continuing its work. Progressive sanctification, making us more like Jesus, is continuing its work. And we have to abide in Christ. Look at verse 24, 1 John. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. It means continue from the present or from the past to the present. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is one sign that these folks in this church family are followers of Christ by their abiding or remaining in him and continuing to obey what he says. John 15, probably the best picture of this understanding of abiding and remaining. John 15, 1, Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then he jumped down to verse four, abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. So if you abide in me, Christ says, I will be in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, get its nutrients from that vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding is a picture of resting, of making ourselves available daily as a living sacrifice, of surrendering our life over to the Lord. And abiding in him allows us to please and glorify him by doing as he says. He says, apart from him, we cannot do anything of spiritual significance. And then we see the truth is in the promise the promise of eternal life given to you. This book is all about having the knowledge 
knowing the confidence that you have eternal life. And he keeps reiterating it throughout the book here in verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So since we've been anointed at salvation with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence in our seat of emotions, our heart. Since we have the Holy Spirit, we have all the gifts of God's Spirit, illumination, understanding God's Word, teaching, wisdom, discernment, comfort, guidance, peace that passes all understanding, conviction, joy, perseverance, and we could go on. All those things are given to us when the Holy Spirit indwells us. So we have certainty about our salvation if we have the Holy Spirit within us. In Romans 8.16, Paul said, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I'll never forget the night that I became a believer in Christ because I can remember what life was like at age 14 before I was a believer. And I remember accepting Christ at 9 o'clock that Saturday night and getting up the next morning and going outside. And nothing had changed as far as where I lived or the trees or anything, but everything seemed to have more color. Everything seemed to make more sense. As a teenager, I began to understand a purpose in my life. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to bear witness with your human spirit. And I hope you have that sense. And I still remember without the Holy Spirit and with, and it's humbling to think that we have that gift that we carry with us everywhere we go. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says, and it is God who established us with you in Christ and he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As it says in Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit's a deposit guaranteeing that we're going to get the full amount of being a joint heir with Jesus Christ when we pass from this life into heaven. So that's the certainty. That's the seal. That's the certainty of knowing you have eternal life if the Holy Spirit is within you. And then the truth reveals counterfeit teaching. If you know the truth, the Spirit helps you to discern when you're hearing teaching that's incorrect. In 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So the third characteristic of a false teacher is that they want to confuse the faithful. Remember we said the first was they depart the fellowship. Second was they deny the faith, or they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And now thirdly, they want to confuse the faithful. It's interesting that false teachers rarely, if ever, try to evangelize the lost, but try to draw the faithful away from the truth. These false teachers muddle the simplicity of the devotion of the Christ followers for Christ in Galatians 1. They tamper with the spiritual confidence of believers, causing them doubt in 1 Timothy chapter 6. They doubt the sufficiency of the word of God in 2 Timothy 3. They confuse key doctrines in Galatians 3. But false teachers can never take away one's salvation. And John is lovingly warning them from a pastor's tender and caring heart, not wanting any of his parishioners to move away into false teaching. And then we see the truth teaches us to remain in Christ. Not only do we discern false teaching, but it helps us to remain in Christ. In verse 27, the last verse in this section we'll look at, 
at the end of that verse, it says, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Because you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, equal to God the Father, because you confessed with your mouth the truth of the gospel, because you received the Holy Spirit and are being taught by the truth of the Holy Spirit, he's saying continue in your journey with Christ by abiding, remaining, resting in him with a surrendered heart, with a surrendered heart. So the application, are you abiding continually in the true vine of Christ for your spiritual nutrients and are you bearing spiritual fruit? You see, we have to be in the word. We have to be listening to the Holy Spirit. We have to uh, do what the Holy Spirit and the word tells us to do. We have to be in prayer, constant communion with our Father. I don't know about you, but there's a certainty of following Christ out of humility. And I think through this scripture, we see it's not about beating ourselves up each day about our sin. We need to confess and seek repentance and forgiveness But God wants us to put our sin behind us daily and walk in an unfettered, confident relationship with him. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We bear his spirit wherever we go. We stay in constant communion and communication with our heavenly father. Why would you want to leave the truths of scripture for a less than Christian life? Why would you want to leave what you have for something that's less than you already have? A constant communion is wrapped up in three words in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says, pray without ceasing. Throughout the day, we stay in communion and relationship with our Heavenly Father. Here's our key thought. The wisdom God has given us by the indwelling, key word there, indwelling of the Holy Spirit along with God's word gives us an inner truth detector when it comes to the teachings of God and his word. That Holy Spirit constantly reminds us that we're saved, that we have eternal life, that we know. And it's not an arrogant we know. It's the humble we know because God chose us before the creation of the world. And why would he choose us? But he did. And it's out of humility that we carry that truth. There's an illustration of a young man. He was at a farm and He saw this bucket sitting next to a barn and the slats were very wide. He could see daylight through it and uh, been sitting there for a long time and he thought it was pretty worthless. It was no good. But an older man who worked on the farm came and took that same bucket and he tied it to a rope and lowered it into the well and left it in the water for three days. And when he came back, he brought the young man over to the well and he cranked it up And he showed that the slats had swelled once again and there wasn't any gap and even a drop of water didn't spill out of the bucket because it had the nutrients, it had the thing it needed to be able to be useful and successful. It had the water to swell the wood to make it useful once again. You and I, we have to stay abiding in Christ to be useful, to be surrendered, to get our spiritual nutrients from him to be able to do the things that produce fruit, to honor and glorify him, and to do his will and his work in our lives. So if you're weary today, or you're doubting, or you're wondering if God can use you, take hold, my friend, to the truths of 1 John and live in the confidence and the certainty of the truth that you know you have an eternal relationship 
with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you and I, we walk out as sons and daughters of the King, children of the King. So I encourage you to abide in him again today. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today and maybe because of the circumstances of your life, because you haven't been staying in the word like you should, whatever it may be, maybe it's bringing doubts into your life. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to examine our hearts, to make sure we're in the faith, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to make sure that we know that we know that we know. And I pray today if you, if you have doubts and you need someone to talk with you and pray with you, I would be available and so would our elders after the service to do that. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this letter that John wrote to the church family in Ephesus and Asia Minor churches. Lord, we thank you for the truths of it. We thank you for the reminder. We thank you for the certainty of the hope that's within us, that you're the anchor in our soul. And thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit that just kind of seals the deal and constantly reminds us throughout the day that we are connected. We're communing with you. We're in relationship with you. And then no matter what happens, the important thing is that we maintain, abide in, remain in that relationship with you because you promise to produce spiritual fruit through us if we abide in you. Help us to be committed to those truths today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.